Uh, kids are going back uh, with... Hmm? Yes, pastor does need the fans on. It's warm in here. Uh, yeah, kids are going back with Miss Pam, Miss Candace. Um, so uh, let me jump on there, Holden, and let me cast some vision while I do it. So we're going to be singing four worship songs now. And uh, the reason that we're doing that is because I, a couple things. I keep writing down three words on scraps of paper, and the words are presence, formation, and mission. Presence, formation, and mission. And I think those kind of start to capture who God's calling us to be in the season ahead of us. We uh, used to do four songs in worship, and we did not find that it was kind of getting us to where we wanted to go. And so we dropped back to about three for a while. And when you are a runner, I don't know this for a fact, but Zach could tell you the science. When you are a runner, you train to expand your lung capacity. Our lung capacity at a church has expanded to the point that we're capable of doing four. And so we're going to manage our time carefully and do all of that, but we're going to be intentional about pursuing the presence of God. And uh, in about a year, somebody would amen to that and not feel afraid. So thank you. Thank you. That's it. I told, I told Tommy this week, I was like, why don't you just throw in a preach pastor? What, every once in a while, freak people out. So good job. Good job. Yeah, Okay. 1 Samuel 11 and 12. If you got your Bible, go to 1st, no, 2nd Samuel 11 and 12. 2nd Samuel 11 and 12. By the way, my name's Kyle. I get to be one of the pastors here. Hi. My all-time favorite television show is called The West Wing. Anybody else have some West Wing love up in the house? Come on. Up high, me and Holden. Good job. All right, okay. It aired on NBC from 1999 to 2006. And when I say that I love this TV show, I love this TV show. We watched it uh, in our first year of marriage. We would go, I would go to the library at my grad school and I would get the DVD sets and then return them late and accrue a really large amount of fines. Anyway, that's not the point. The point is we watched it then. I have since watched it through at least seven more times. And... uh, To the point that my wife one time said, are we in a healthy place? (laughs) When I am doing household chores, I am watching the West Wing in the background. Uh, When I go on long drives, I listen to the podcast, The West Wing Weekly, where Joshua Malina and another guy talk through every episode in punishingly exact detail. It is great. Um, In 2016, I was unsure of who to vote for. I very nearly wrote in President Josiah Bartlett. And uh, that's the president in this show. When people say on Facebook things like, that's not my president, I'm like, yeah, because mine is President Josiah Bartlett, um, former governor of New Hampshire. Um, But he's not a real person, let's be clear. He is in my heart, but he's not really. Um, if If I could draft pick a circle, like a small group, to be in a Bible study, it would be the cast of the West Wing and me. It would be great. So I'm going to give you some spoilers on this show because it's 21 years old. I don't feel bad about this. So in the, in the first season of the show, about halfway through, the president uh, gets sick with the flu and he collapses in the Oval Office and his wife, Abby, who happens to be a medical doctor, comes running back from uh, a, an official visit overseas, which everyone finds strange because it's just the flu. 
But as the episode progresses, you come to find out that it's dangerous for the president to have the flu because he has been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and flus are, uh, could be lethal for people with MS. You also come to find out that the president did not disclose during the process of the campaign that he had this illness. And so, of course, it breaks publicly that the president in this show has MS right as he's announcing his re-election bid. And so there are hearings and political intrigue and back and forth, and the people in, on the president's kind of team in favor of the president say he didn't lie. Detractors of the president say, of course he lied. And so all of this is running up to the possibility that the president will receive a congressional censure. And a censure is the strongest rebuke that a Congress can give a sitting president. Uh, the only president in our history to be censured was Andrew Jackson in 1834. He had it expunged from the record in 1837, and that's just a little bit of interesting tidbit for you to use at your next cocktail party. So, all of this is coming up on should I be censured or should I not, and the president's staff are saying not, and then the president uh, says this. doing this to save me the embarrassment I've got coming to me is about the dumbest reason I can think There's another reason. What? I was wrong. I was. I was just... I was wrong. Come on, we know that. Lots of times we don't know what right or wrong is, but lots of times we do, and come on, this is one. I may not have had sinister intent at the outset but there were plenty of opportunities for me to make it right no one in government takes responsibility for anything anymore we foster we obfuscate we rationalize everybody does it that's what we say so we come to occupy a moral safe house where everyone's to blame so no one's guilty i'm to blame I was wrong. The president uttered three words that all of us find terrifying and that our culture finds terrifying, which is, I was wrong. We live in a world that occupies what he described as the moral safe ground, which is everybody's guilty, so nobody's to blame. And as we turn to 2 Samuel 11 and 12 this morning, we find that David is at fault, that David is to blame, that despite his best attempts to obfuscate and cover up his failures, he is found out, and the prophet Nathan comes and preaches to him a sermon that gets David to admit his own guilt. It is a story that we Americans love. Politics meets sex meets violence. So let's look at First Samuel, excuse me, Second Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1, which says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. 
And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, verse 5, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. In just five verses and 148 words, we span weeks and months of action in quick succession. And it starts with David, where he simply should not be. Kings in the ancient Near East have one job, and that is to lead their people in battle. In fact, in 1 Samuel 8, that is precisely why Israel asks for a king. Give us a king like the other nations have, so that we may be led in battle. Yet David has sent someone to do his dirty work. He has sent Joab, his general. So here's David, where he simply should not be, looking at things he simply should not be looking at. A naked woman, who we learn is called Bathsheba, bathing on her roof. And right now, we need to stop and insist that Bathsheba, bathing on her roof, is doing the normal, matter-of-course thing. She is not looking for it. She is not seeking to entice. She is living her life. David is in the wrong. David is where he should not be. His eyes wandering where they should not go. So David sends someone to find out who she is. He sends to find her name. Her name is found. He sends for her. And now the verbs come quickly. He sent for her. He took her. She came to him. He lay with her. And this string of verbs in rapid succession indicate that David uses his power as ruler and king improperly. This is a biblical Me Too moment. A woman coerced into compliance by the force and weight of the person she is dealing with. David lays with her. And in 2 Samuel 11, verse 5, we hear Bathsheba's voice voice for the first and only time. She speaks once, and all she says is, I am pregnant. What follows is a hasty attempt at a cover-up followed by murder. David calls, uh, finding out that Bathsheba is pregnant, David calls her husband, Uriah the Hittite, back from the field of battle. And twice does it tell us so far that Uriah is a Hittite. In other words, Uriah is a foreigner living in Israel with more character than, and more righteousness than Israel's king. He calls Uriah back from the battle, supposedly to get Uriah to give him a little update about what's going on, but ultimately so that David can get Uriah to sleep with his wife and therefore cover up the pregnancy. David says, why don't you go down to your house and wash your feet? Cough, cough, wink, wink. Feet is a euphemistic term in the Old Testament for you know. And if you don't know, go ask your mom. So it'll be a super comfortable conversation. What's interesting in this first interaction between David and Uriah is that it's pretty clear that Uriah does not know what happened. Uriah is a man of righteousness and upright integrity. Uh, soldiers in the ancient Near East do not, uh, they, they don't have sex during, battle, during war, they abstain. And so Uriah, instead of going home to his wife, sleeps outside the gate of the palace. So the next morning David hears of this. David sends for Uriah, and Uriah says an interesting thing. David's like, why didn't you go home? And Uriah says, 
The ark of God, God's presence, Israel and all of Judah dwell in booths or tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, he says, and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today and tomorrow I will send you back. David tries to get Uriah drunk. That doesn't work. But what's interesting is that in the subtext of of Uriah's conversation with David is Uriah is indicating to David subtly that he knows exactly what's going on. Why would I go to my house, he says, to the king who has not once left his house? See, Jerusalem in this moment is just like Trumbull County. And in Trumbull County, a secret is just something you tell people one at a time. This is the worst kept secret in Jerusalem in this moment. The worst kept secret is that David has gotten Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, pregnant. And of course it's not a secret. David is sending this person to do his bidding and that person to do his bidding, this person to do it. Uriah's sleeping outside in the gate with the other soldiers. Of course they're talking late into the night about what's going on. Right, Jade? Yes. Uriah knows. And so David has to hatch a murder plot. He sends Uriah back to the field of battle, sends him with a letter intended for the general Joab, demanding that Uriah be placed at the most heated part of the battle. Uriah is put up against the enemy's gate, and there Uriah and other valiant men of Israel, the text is clear to say, die. Joab sends word back to David that says, Uriah the Hittite is dead. In other words, Joab knows now too. Everyone knows what is happening, even as David frantically tries to cover it up and hide it and keep it a secret. Everyone knows. So Uriah is dead, and it's now time for David to put a bow on this situation. After Bathsheba uh, grieves the appointed period of seven days, David brings her into his house in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 11. And he weds her just in time for her to start showing. David's attempts to get Uriah to sleep with his wife, to cover up the pregnancy, David's attempts to lie all fall short. And so verse 27 says, When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Finally, the voice of the Lord, the only voice that matters, speaks, and when he speaks, he isn't happy. The Lord is displeased, and really so are we. We aren't prepared for this kind of David What began as a lustful whim developed into an enormous sex and murder crime, and we can't help but ask, how does this happen? It happens the way all sin happens. It happens the way most sin happens. It happens gradually, and it happens unobtrusively. Most of the sin that creeps into our lives does so quietly and unnoticed. It takes over in a series of small decisions and small moments that multiply by a magnitude until one day you become only a shadow of yourself. So it is with David. 
David engages in a series of small decisions that multiply over a magnitude, and they lead David to become someone that we barely recognize. Where is the man who Scripture describes as a man after God's own heart? We can track David's fall. We can track his crumbling. We can track these series of small decisions by looking at just one little verb in the Hebrew, which is the verb sent. This little verb is used 11 times in chapters 11 and 12. Verb by verb, you watch David fall from this compassionate man after God's own heart who is intimate with his companions. You watch him fall to become this controlling, manipulative man. And verb by verb and scent by scent, David chooses to take a position outside of and above others. Outside of and above others. He gives orders. He exercises power. And slowly but surely, he convinces himself of this, that he is as powerful as a god. No, that he is God. This is the essence of sin. The essence of sin is forgetting that we are not God. The essence of sin is taking a God-like position over our lives and the lives of others. Let me say that again. It's really important. Sin is taking a God-like position over our lives or the lives of others. When Adam and Eve, our first parents, eat of the tree of the fruit, eat of the forbidden tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, they do so, the text says, to become like God. They overturn the created order. They reject their position as created submissive beings, and instead they try to take command of their own destiny and the destinies of others. They reject God's, God's way, and they wreak havoc on themselves, on each other, and on creation. See, sin always has collateral damage. In a world of individualism, we believe, hook, line, and sinker, that the sin I engage with in private has no ramifications outside of what I do, but it doesn't. In the midst of the murder and the bloodshed and the lying and the deceit and the misuse of power and the lust, David sending here, David sending there, with each sending he convinces himself of his godlike power. And then in uh, chapter 12, verse 1, a final sending happens. The verb send is used one last time, and it says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Uh Uh-oh. Nathan is the prophet of the Lord. He is David's pastor. He's David's pastor. And so David's pastor comes and preaches to David a sermon. And the sermon goes like this. It starts in verse 2. There were two men in a certain town. That's the Bible's way of saying once upon a time when it builds a construction like this. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich, one was poor. The rich man, the rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb. It grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate. It drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. And one day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. Verse 5 says, David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. 
He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. See, as David listens to Nathan, he's drawn in. He has no idea that he's listening to a sermon. Nathan isn't in a pulpit. David isn't sitting in a pew. There's no biblical text. There's no explicit reference to God. But David finds himself stirred by Nathan's word. And here's the thing. Nathan is really good at this. Nathan stalks his prey. Nathan waits in the tall grasses. He tells a simple, artful story. And as David is drawn into the story of sadness and cruelty, Nathan pounces and he looks at David and he says, You are the man. And it all came crashing down. The illusions of godhood, the thrill of power, the intensity of the secrecy, it all comes crashing down. And David, David is struck to the heart. He is pierced to the soul. And, and as Nathan continues to preach a sermon about God's faithfulness and character and about the promises given to David and David's house, promises that are not revoked but barely, David engages after the sermon in a little response time. Right? That's what we do here, right? We hear a sermon, then we respond to God. There's a little response time. Where David says, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. The consequences of David's sin are serious. Because David's sin is serious. The child that is given to David through Bathsheba dies. And the consequences don't, start, don't stop there. The, the, the consequences of his sexual sin, it trickles down to infect David's other sons. He will be forced to leave Jerusalem. He will fear for his life. He will evade capture as he once did in the wilderness of Israel, evading not the armies of Saul, but the armies of his sons who intend to steal his throne. We'll talk about all of this in two weeks because we, we wrestle with the nature of the consequences of our sin. But the consequences of David's sin are serious because David's sin is serious. And yet we find in this passage something absolutely incredible and unimaginable. We find that the weight of David's sin and the weight of David's failure is nothing when compared to the weight of mercy is nothing when compared to the weight of mercy. Nothing when compared to God's readiness to forgive. David says, I was wrong. And we flinch. David says, I was wrong. Our culture, like, recoils. In the middle ground of everybody's guilty so nobody's to blame, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Words that we are terrified to speak because they are so honest and so raw and so real. But hear me, there are no words more full of hope. There are no words more real than I have sinned against the Lord because in saying them, we draw near to the God who is good at this thing, forgiving sin. 
We draw near to a God who says of himself, I am a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. See, in in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, we expect to find a story of wrath and judgment and anger because everybody in our culture walks around thinking that God is pissed at them. But instead of this story of judgment and wrath, or in addition to it, we find a story of mercy and compassion and forgiveness, which is why David pens the words of the psalm that Corey led us with after this incident. David pens the words of Psalm 51, not just on a whim, but in this moment, he writes the words, against you and you only have I sinned. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. See, David's sin and our sin is a heavy weight. But the mercies of God, his grace, is heavier. And in the last couple moments we have together, I want to consider the weight of sin and the healing of confession and the power of salvation. But before I do, I just want to say that I had a whole paragraph or two about not presuming on God's kindness and forgiveness. And then I realized, if you're presuming on God's kindness and forgiveness, you're going to keep doing it anyway. And I can't convince you out of that. You need to be convicted out of that. I'm here today to talk to the broken. I'm here today to talk to the weak. I am here today to talk to the ones who know their sin. At its heart, sin is this decision to assume control over our lives like we know better. To assume control over our destiny and the destiny of others. It is to choose to become like God's, to take God and put him aside as if his godhood doesn't matter. And and listen, this sin that creeps into our lives, it doesn't happen all at once. Like David, a series of decisions multiply over a magnitude, and one lie leads to another, and one sending leads to another until men lie dead and a woman lies pregnant. And when we when we first put our faith in Christ. When we first choose the way of Jesus, we immediately become aware of, or very quickly become aware of, what the church fathers and mothers called the gross sins, the big ones, sex and money and power. Something that was totally normal to us a few weeks ago or a few months ago, now in the light of day and in the light of Jesus' goodness, seems so wrong. And so we put that sin to death. And then we begin a long journey requiring uh, what, what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. Because once the gross sins have been put to death, there's these other sins that plague us, sins that grow up in our souls like weeds in our flower beds. Small and annoying and resistant and recurring sin. Gossip. Slander, greed, pride, control, anger, passivity, ignorance, gluttony, laziness, apathy. Our gross sins are defeated 
But then we treat these sins casually, failing to realize that even these small sins, so-called, are no less an offense to God than our gross sin, failing to recognize failing to recognize that these sins too multiply by a magnitude as we choose godhood over the submissive posture of letting God be God. And not only do we ignore these sins, we engage in a campaign of self-deception to tell ourselves these are fine. Everybody does them. Everybody's guilty, so nobody's to blame. Cornelius Plantinga Jr. says that self-deception about our sin is a narcotic. And with all due respect to those in our community who are in recovery, every person in the sound of my voice is a drug addict. Addicted to the narcotic of covering up our sin. Self-deception about our sin is a narcotic, a tranquilizing and disorienting suppression of our spiritual central nervous system I mean, do you remember some passion that was inside of you when you first came to know Jesus that has since gone away? Do you see other people engaging with a passion for God that seems unattainable, so you excuse it as weird or crazy instead of the norm that you're not living up to? See, what's happened is you've let these small sins accumulate by a degree of magnitude such that your your central nervous system is, is depleted, it's suppressed, it's numbed out. This is why our passion for worship dies. It's why our energy for service fades. It's why our engagement in evangelism and telling other people about Jesus becomes non-existent because the enemy wants you to ignore your so-called small sins, excusing them with theories of personality, and I'm looking at all of us Enneagram people. By theories of personality, by old age, that's just the way I am. By upbringing. See, a couple generations ago, you went to a priest for confession of your sin. Now we go to, no offense, Tommy, we go to therapists who tell us it's not our fault. This is the weight of sin, which scripture tells us to do one thing with put to death. Put to death, Paul says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Colossians 3 5. Don't treat it, don't manage it. Don't explain it away. Formation in the way of Jesus is putting sin to death. And a simple practice for putting sin to death is this. Confession. Confession. Naming your sin, agreeing with God, and here's where it gets tricky, telling another person. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a great book called Life Together, and he says that when we confess our sins to someone, we are going to God. And in do so, we get rid of the isolation and the loneliness that sin wants to trap us in because sin festers in isolation. And so James says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. To experience healing from sin, we need to confess sin. And here's the funny part, the fun part about this principle called the priesthood of all believers. I don't need a hired holy man to get it done. I don't need to go into a closet where there's a wall here and speak through a screen. I just need you and you just need me. Because when someone confesses their sins to you, you get the unique opportunity to be Jesus to them. You get the unique opportunity 
to be the Jesus who carries our sin away, the Jesus who separates our sin from us as far as the East is from the West. We put sin to death by confessing sin to someone else. And yes, maybe that means then therapy. Yes, that means mentoring. Yes, that means accountability. But either we're putting sin to death or we're occasionally thinking that probably should stop and just living our lives anyway. Nathan looked at David. Nathan looked at David and said, you are the man. And sometime later, Jesus, the son of David, would go to Jerusalem, the place that David foolishly did not leave, and to fulfill the, the promise uh, spoken of the prophets, Jesus is betrayed into the hands of the rulers and officials. He is betrayed into the hands of a man named Pontius Pilate, who is the Roman governor of Palestine. As Pilate questions Jesus, he can find no wrong in him. He can find no wrong in him. He can find no fault in Jesus, none whatsoever. The sin of which this Jesus is accused is impossible to find, and yet the crowds will settle for nothing less than Jesus' death. Sinful people would love nothing more than to kill the innocent one who's just making them look bad. Nathan looked at David and said, You are the man. And Pontius Pilate looked out at the crowds and said, Behold the man. Cornelius Plantinga, this is from his book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. At the center of the Christian Bible, four Gospels describe the pains God has taken to defeat sin and its wages. The very shape of these Gospels tells us how much the pains matter. The Gospels are shaped, as Martin Collar famously put it, as passion narratives with long introductions. In other words, the Gospels really are about painfully and in excruciating detail articulating the death of Jesus with just some other stuff at the front. Accordingly, Christians have always measured sin in part by the suffering needed to atone for it. The ripping and writhing of a body on a cross, the bizarre metaphysical maneuver to use death to defeat death, the urgency of the summons to human beings to ally themselves with these events, and then to make that person and those events the center of their lives, these things tell us that the main human trouble is desperately difficult to fix. These things tell us that the main human trouble is desperately difficult to fix, even for God, and that sin is the longest running of human emergencies. Sin is the longest running of human emergencies. We have tried to take God's place and found it disastrous. And so God gives us Jesus and says, Behold the man, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who's living and dying and resurrection, and through not faith as intellectual ascent, stop intellectually ascending, assenting to something that demands your whole life. And start putting Jesus at the center. That is the gospel. That is formation in the way of Jesus. And that is freedom. Let's pray.